Well, never let your brother go first. That's the moral of this story. <clears throat> I've got 50. What do we have to? What time's lunch? 1.15? <laughs> what time is lunch? Is, is it noon or 12.15? Is it really noon? Like on the dot noon? Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to be... I'm going to be incredibly concise here, incredibly concise. So, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, this morning is sort of uh, a little bit philosophical, if you will, inspirational, um, wanting to give you a, a broad bird's eye view picture as well as kind of give you some compelling reasons why um, personal work and personal soul winning is so needed in the church. So I'm going to kind of continue that vein a little bit, but talk about uh, about a few other specific areas of it. And then we'll get a little bit more into some of the methodology and that sort of thing as we continue in your schedule. But before we start uh, this last session for the morning, let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity and privilege we have to spend time just considering the work that you have called us to. We want to be genuine disciples, and that means we want to be like you. We want, to, we want to be soul winners through and through in our heart of hearts. And uh, Father, we know that if the calling that we have is to make disciples, then that means that we not only need to win others, but we need to win them to that same soul winning work. So please help us, Lord, to understand this cycle that we are involved in and help us to do our part. Speak to us through your Spirit now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, see that part that Mark told me I was going to have time to do where I asked what church you're all from? Um, I didn't have time for it. So if we could just, instead of going around and finding out what church you're from, if on the count of three you would all just tell me what church you are from. One, two, three... That's, that's what I thought. Okay, I, I caught all that. Let's get started. Um, Acts, Acts chapter 8. Let's take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8. So here's the deal. Uh, there's perhaps going to be some things that I share with you uh, that you have heard before, or maybe you even heard me say it before. I don't know. Uh, but that's okay, because I'm going to talk really fast, and it'll be over before you know it. So Acts chapter 8. And beginning in verse 1, this is right after Acts chapter 7, in which Stephen, that uh, first Christian martyr, was stoned, and there was someone standing by who was consenting to his death. And who was that? Saul. And Saul, uh, we learn later in Acts chapter 9, uh, in his conversion story, um, we learn that he was kicking or against the goads, uh, which tells me that the Spirit of God was working on the Apostle and he was resisting the Spirit of God. And one of the key places where he was resisting the Spirit of God was in this story in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is stoned and he looks up and sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God and he says, Lord, charge not their sin against them. And Paul soon to be Paul, is looking at this and, and you know, he's supposed to be the one who's you know, consenting to this awful person being put to death and he's seeing this Spirit of Christ 
and, and, and the, the glory of God emanating from Stephen, and he is convicted in his heart. <clears throat> and as a result of the conviction, you can, conviction results in different things. Sometimes conviction will lead someone to fall on their knees and to, and to pour out their heart and to surrender their life. But sometimes conviction leads someone to try to bury that conviction by getting even more uh, wicked in what they're doing. And the apostle, soon-to-be apostle, did that very thing. Saul decided to amp up the persecution that was going on. And so that's what happens in Acts chapter 8. Right after the stoning of Stephen, you have, uh, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, Saul consenting to his death. And then it says, At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except the apostles. So who was in Judea and Samaria? Who was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria? The church members, okay. And who stayed in Jerusalem? The apostles, okay. So you have the leaders, the pastors in Jerusalem, and the church members scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, right? Now, in verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered, who was that? The church members went everywhere doing what? Preaching the Word. Now, presumably, the, the apostles were also preaching the Word, but they were in Jerusalem, and so this isn't talking about them. This is talking about the lay people going everywhere preaching the Word. And Mark took you to Acts chapter 11. I'd like you to take you there again. Go to Acts chapter 11 and uh, verse 19, and you'll see the same group spoken of. Acts 11:19 says, Now those who were scattered over the persecution that arose over Stephen, who's that? The church members. Those who were scattered over the persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the Word to no one but the Jews only. And uh, look at verse 21, and the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And it's for this reason, as Mark brought up, that the end of verse 26 says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Antioch, which turned out to be the home base for Paul and Barnabas and their missionary endeavors, where they spent much time, this home base was developed through the preaching of lay people. And Paul and Barnabas were just came later. And we're like, oh, wow, this is really of God. Just keep doing what you're doing. And they helped put some, you know, a little bit of structure to it. But the bottom line is it was this incredible movement of lay people that developed this, this uh, church in Antioch and by which, quite frankly, the work spread as fast and as quickly as it did. We always like to look at it and say the Apostle Paul did it all. Right? The Apostle Paul, he did all that. He spread it to the then known world. No. The Apostle Paul knew how to mentor people who went and did the same thing. And what you see right here is that the work of the early church, the model of church that you see in the early church, was one in which the laity were preaching the word. Then, as churches were established in Antioch by lay people and in other places, then they, they appointed elders to oversee. Now, let me help you understand what that's saying. Elders, you could consider part of the church structure, okay? The organization of the church. So what drove what here? Was it, was it the structure 
driving the work, or was it the work of the lay people driving the need for structure? You understand what I'm saying? So what can happen if we're not careful is that we can look at the church and its structure and think that it is the actual uh, working body of the church, and then the actual laity spreading the truth that you see in the early church model can disappear and it can create very big problems. Let me uh, take you to something in your manual here. And I don't know exactly what page it's on, but I'm going to find it and then I'll tell you where it is. Okay, page, uh, it says page 11. We really need to page this whole thing. It's in your appendix. Is this the actual bookmark? Bookmark, hey. Hey, Mark, is this the, uh, (laughs) what am I trying to say? Is this the one that they have? Same. Okay, so it's chapter 10. Uh huh. It says chapter 10 on the top of the page. Do you want to come here and show me if this is, if we're looking? Creating a culture of evangelism, yes. Okay, and then once you get to chapter 10, which is, then you go to page 11. Okay, it looks like this. And it's in section three. (laughs) Section three on the bottom. Chapter 10, page 11. Yeah, if you're looking at the bottom, it says section three. Do you find it? Anybody not find it? You're still working on it? Did you find it? You found it. Yes. All right. Here's what I want to talk to you about. This page gives a picture of the work of the church, okay? And uh, so I'm just going to do a sketch up here. It's easy to do it this way. There's, there's a box up at the top that represents the work, the behind-the-scenes work of the church. There's all sorts of things that happen behind the scenes. Read to me a few of the things that are in that box at the top. Okay, what else? Board meetings, business meetings, departmental meetings. There's lots of meetings, I noticed. Church plant, that's mowing and stuff, right? Administrative stuff, treasury. This is all stuff that happens behind the scenes. A lot of these are important meetings. You've got your board meetings, which drive the strategy of your church. They're supposed to. Um, You have your departmental meetings, your elders meetings. You have nominating committee meetings. You have all sorts of very important meetings that drive what you're going to do. It's all the the behind-the-scenes preparatory work of the church. We would call it uh, preparation for ministry. And then out of that, you have different types of ministry, okay? You have ministry to the church. And let's be clear here. Any ministry to the church also includes ministry to the community, uh, but it's fringe. It's sort of um, incidental. In other words... You, have a, you hold a church service. Is that ministry to the church or the community? Well, it's primarily ministry to the church, but of course you have incidental, you know, you have people who visit, you have visitors, you invite people, that sort of thing. But its primary mode is ministry to the church, okay? 
And that's the same with a lot of other things that we have. Sabbath school, prayer meeting, uh, church school. I mean, these things, we, we get people from outside, but their primary function, even pathfinders, other things, I mean, as a general rule, we often are talking about ministering to the church here. There are other things, though, where we go directly to the community. We advertise primarily to the community. The main purpose is to try to uh, connect with people in the community. And those, of course, also benefit the church. So we're not saying that there's not incidental with the church there, but their primary focus is the community. And which, what are those types of things? Vacation Bible school. Okay, you may have mostly your kids, but you're advertising that to the community. You're trying to get community people there. Health seminars, uh, evangelistic meetings, right? Cooking classes. So you have some people, some churches, you know, they have all this preparation, meetings, 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 and then they basically do this. And they hardly have any outreach to the community. So then there are other churches that are just beehives of activity, and they have all kinds of community outreach that's going on, as you see there on the right. And uh, so if a church just has these two, that's, that can get very inward focused, can't it? If a church has a healthy balance of both of these, it's still way messed up. It's totally broken. It looks nothing like the early church. Because there's a very vital, central component that is missing in this church. What is it? Yeah, flip that page over and you'll see personal work. If you notice... Nearly, just about everything in here, everything in here, in this box here where we're talking about these community things, are all what type of work? Give me some words. They're outreach, yeah, but they're group. They're corporate. They're corporate. They're events, right? So, okay, yeah, we're a real evangelistic church because we have evangelistic meetings every year, and for four weeks... We show up, and then when those four weeks are over, what happens to the interest list? I mean, it goes somewhere, but, but you may not know where, right? It's the pastor's desk, the personal ministry leader's desk. They've got to follow up with all those people, whatever. But, but, the, but the, the sacrifice of the dear saints who spent those four to six weeks, I mean, they've, they've given their all, and they've, they've whatever, and then they're done other than that they will certainly be friendly to the people when they see them at potluck. But that's different. That's not laboring for a soul. And you have to understand that personal work is what drives the church. It is intended to be what creates the need for structure in the church. But we have so many people who really want to hang out in only corporate work in the church. They'll help with events in the church. They'll help as a team. You look at it, your church board or your personal ministries council, and they create a calendar for the year. And, you know, here's our evangelism for the year. And it's just a list of events. And there's not oftentimes much thought about getting the entire church involved in personal labor. Now, I'm going to flesh personal labor out for you uh, here in a moment. But first, I'm going to 
touch on the need for personal work here on this little Q&A I handed out to you. I don't have time to go through all these quotes, but I hope you'll read through them. This is give you a little substance for what I'm trying to say here about the need for personal work. Um, let me point you to the third bold question here. Corporate church outreach and personal outreach are both important, but which is the most important? Do you see that? Now look at the quote right underneath there. and I'm gonna, This is a very important quote. Your work may accomplish more real good than the more extensive meetings. Now what would be in a more extensive meeting? Like in a big a corporate event, right? An evangelistic series or the like. If they lack in personal effort. When both are combined with the blessing of God, a more perfect and thorough work may be wrought. But if we can have but one part done, let it be what? Whoa! Wait a minute. If we can have but one part done in the church, let it be personal, individual labor of doing what? Of opening the Scriptures in the households, making personal appeals, and talking familiarly with the members of the family. Not about the game, but about the great themes of redemption. Is that what it says? So, look. If you think about this, the early church started primarily with this. There wasn't a lot of structure in the early church. There wasn't nominating committees, right? There was no church manual yet. Hey, I believe in those things. I think they're important. But if we're not careful, we'll get a wrong idea of what the substance of the work of the church is. And, and so what you have is that the early church started with primarily just this, personal work. And that drove the need for the structure and the organization. But now, we have the majority of our members spending time working in only group, corporate types of things, which are important. Let's be, let's be clear about that. It says here, when both are combined, a more what? What's it say in the quote? That's right. A more perfect and thorough work may be wrought. So we know that there are some things that as a church, corporately, we can do that you can't do as an individual. And it's a blessing to have that. That's why we do things collectively as a conference. is because there are certain things that we can do conference-wide that we can't do as individual churches. There's a great blessing in pressing together and doing those things. But those things are not the most important part. This is the most important part. And it can get to the point where people just hang out up here and the whole substance of the early church is gone except for maybe 3% of the church, the pastor, the Bible worker, and one or two crazy people. And then, think about this, at the end of time that we're living in, it will not be long before the structure itself is going to begin to struggle because persecution, because doors are shut, because opportunities to publicly express ourselves are, are limited. And suddenly, what are we going to need to be doing? This, but who's going to do it? <laughs> because everybody, you know, you can't bring everybody together and, and, and pass out flyers. And so what are we going to do? We've got to learn now to reestablish the substance of the work of the early church and get the personal work back where it belongs as the heart of evangelism. And if I could just make it really simple for you. Literature 
and Bible studies and sharing your testimony, these are the heart of evangelism. Corporate events are, they supplement, but the heart is the personal work, and we've got to recapture that. And if you look on here, it says some pretty fascinating things at the bottom of this thing. House-to-house labor, searching for souls, hunting for lost sheep is the most essential work in bold that can be done. Visiting, talking, praying, sympathizing with people, you'll win their hearts. This is the highest missionary work that you can do. It is not preaching that is most important. It is house-to-house work, reasoning from the Word, explaining the Word. Over and over, the Spirit of Prophecy confirms that it is the personal work that is most important when it comes to evangelism. Now, if you look on the back of this sheet, it asks a very important question. Isn't personal labor for souls the pastor's job? What's the answer to that question? Absolutely it is. <laughs> it's just not just the pastor, right? And I'm not going to take time to read this quote, but you really ought to read it. This big, tall quote here talks about, Elamite says, hey, the work of the pastor is like the work of a foreman. And, and the foreman is supposed to put people to work and make sure that they are working. And she talks about this foreman who, when there was a problem, got into the pit and started doing all these repairs while all the workers, six workers, stood by watching the foreman do all the work. And then, uh, when the owner of the company found out about it, he called the foreman in and he said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to let you go. And the foreman said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, look, I paid you to keep these six men working and, and instead, you're teaching these six men how to be idle. And she says, this is the same that we have with our pastors. Pastors should not be doing all the personal work, but should be making sure that the church is doing personal work. Otherwise, they will be teaching the church how to be idle. And that's problematic because of some very real reasons I'm going to tell you about. Um, if you look at this page. I'm not going to go into every quote, but let me highlight a few of the bold statements here. I'm trying to move quickly because i got more I want to say. If you look at the fourth from the bottom here, it says that uh, the Lord calls on pardoned souls, that's all Christians, to make known the truth to others. Third from the last quote, the devil is doing all he can to keep people in inactivity, to keep them from acting their part in spreading the truth. Then the next one, speaking about all disciples, the truth is to be scattered by all who claim to be disciples of Christ. In all three of these quotes, there's a common element. You know what it is? The truth. The truth is to be spread by all. The truth is to be scattered by all. The devil is doing everything he can to keep people from spreading the truth. Now, a couple of reasons why this is. Look at the third quote from the bottom now. It starts, Satan is now seeking, and I'm going to read the last part. It says he's trying to keep people from acting their part in spreading the truth, that they may at last be weighed in the balance. What's weighed in the balance mean? Judged. That they may be judged and found what? What does that mean? Lost. Right? Does that not mean lost? The devil is trying to keep our church members from acting their part in spreading the truth so that when they are judged, they will be lost. I mean, that's heavy stuff. This isn't just about trying to keep people from being saved out there. 
the devil is trying to take the people that have been claimed by Christ, who have been won by the truth, and make them so complacent that they become worldly in heart and lose their first love and are in the end lost. This is what the devil is trying to do. Did you know that there's only two ways you can go? You, you, don't, you don't just uh, stand still in the Christian life. You're either growing, or as old A.T. Jones used to say, you are, or no, and this was actually an Ellen White statement in 1888, or you are retrograding, going backwards. Now, now, this is important because of the next quote I'm about to read to you. And this is my favorite one on the whole page. That's why I saved it for last. Look at the second quote, starting, let ministers. Do you see it? Let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, okay, are you following that? In order for church members to grow in spirituality, they, what's that next word? Must. They must carry the burden that who? The Lord has laid upon them the burden of leading souls into the truth. Now, let's unpack this because it's full of significance, this quote. Ministers, first of all, are to teach their church members this, and they're to teach them that in order for you to grow, you must do what... what She's saying here. Now, if you're not growing, what are you doing? You're going backwards. Okay? You're dying. You're dying spiritually. And, and, and in, at risk of being weighed in the balance and found wanting. This is, the, this, is the, this is the great solemn weight that rests upon the ministry. Is the fact that the church members placed under their care be weighed in the balances and found wanting unless they are taught to grow. And the only way this says that you're going to be able to continue growing is if you carry the burden. Now let me tell you something. I'm a minister. I have no right to place a single burden upon any of you. I can't put a burden on you. Pharisees try to do that. They put burdens on you. I can't put a burden on you. But I'm duty bound to tell you of every burden that the Lord has laid upon you. The Lord has laid upon you a burden. And that burden, according to this passage, is not just what the others said, which is to scatter the truth, to spread the truth. I can spread the truth with a glow track. But I must tell you that you have a burden, and that burden that the Lord has laid upon you is to lead souls into the truth. That's not a pass by witnessing. That's investing. That's investing in people who you find who show interest and leading them to make decisions to follow Jesus every step of truth as it's, as it's revealed to them. That is a labor of love. That takes time. That takes process. And praise God, he has given us a wonderful uh, method and opportunity in the Seventh Adventist, Church, Seventh Adventist Church to do that, and that's through Bible studies. There is nothing like Bible studies to lead someone into the truth. And so I personally have this conviction 
that God has called every one of you to give Bible studies. Now, they can come in different shapes and forms, and, uh, and different personalities are going to do them differently, and sometimes it's going to just be, you know, you're, you start small, and you're just inviting people, or you're showing them uh, DVD or whatever. Hey, look, witnessing is just is sharing what you have seen and heard, right? It's your own personal experience. If, if somebody comes into the church by watching Doug Batchelor DVDs, what is witnessing going to be? It's sharing Doug Batchelor DVDs with people. Am I right? I mean, that's how it works. And that's, praise the Lord for it. Um, if you are, you know, confused by all the texts about the Sabbath, but then you read that one that says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that breaks your heart and causes you to follow him and keep the Sabbath holy. Then when you share with someone, what are you going to share with them? You're going to take them to John 14, 15. You say, this, this broke my heart. I mean, how can I read that and not keep his commandments, right? You don't have to say what everybody else says. You have to share what God has revealed to you, what you have seen and heard. But guess what? Every one of you have seen and heard the truth through the same source. It's the Word. You've seen it in the Word. And witnessing for anyone is sharing the word. And I've got news for you. Witnessing is not a spiritual gift. Did you hear what I said? You think I said it, but really Mark Finley wrote it in your article here. I'll tell you where it is, just so you know. Yeah, it's in the appendix. It's uh, on page 34 of the appendix called Recapturing the Passion. I just want to encourage you uh, to read that article and the bottom of page 34, the first sentence on the last paragraph on page 34 says, Witnessing is not a spiritual gift. It is a calling God gives to each believer. We are all called to witness. See, you can look at uh, the spiritual gifts list all you want, and you will not find witnessing on there. You won't find preaching on there. Preaching is just proclaiming. Preaching is just sharing. There's different ways of saying it. You don't have to stand behind a pulpit to preach. When you look in Acts chapter 8 and it says they went everywhere preaching the word, that doesn't mean they went everywhere setting up a pulpit and uh, delivering a sermon. It means they were sharing what they had learned. Okay, And God has called everyone else to do that. That is not in the spiritual gift list. We've got a messed up idea about spiritual gifts. It is killing the church. I'm just telling you right now, it is killing the church. We, we think that if I am not an extroverted, sanguine person, that it's not my gift to give Bible studies. If I'm not the smart, intellectual person, then it's not my gift to give Bible studies. Get that out of your head. Just get it out of there. I'm telling you, you don't know what you are until you go to do it. You do what God has called you to do. Let me tell you something. You would not have this Bible if it weren't for the fact that the disciples prayed for boldness. Why did they have to pray for boldness? Because they didn't have it. What were they, trained seminarians? What are we talking about here? Fishermen. Fishermen 
who saw the call of God and felt compelled by the call of God to do something that was totally outside of their comfort zone. If the early apostles had not come out of their comfort zone, we would not be here today. Brothers and sisters, you must come out of your comfort zone. There is no witnessing in the comfort zone. I mean, maybe for two or three strange, very strange people on this campground. I don't know. But for most people, it is not natural to go and put yourself at risk and, and talk to somebody about something that you know is going to potentially cause you to look funny or strange or not be accepted or be open to rejection and all those things. Now, some people don't care about that stuff and then it just rolls right off of them, whatever. But just because you may not be that kind of person doesn't mean you're not called to do it. And that's the point. That's what Pastor Howard was sharing earlier. That when it says we have to deny ourselves, that's exactly what it's saying. We must deny ourselves in order to bear witness. And we are called to do it. Every one of us is called to do it. In fact, we can't grow in spirituality unless we do. That's the very thing that causes us to grow is when we stretch ourselves and come out of that comfort zone. And God knew this, and so he established a means by which the church could get involved. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but just in case somebody hasn't, I'm going to give a real brief history to you. Elder Stephen Haskell, preaching in Southern California in a camp meeting in 1883. At that time, the early Adventist church spread its message in two primary ways, through literature and tracts, or through setting up big tents and having camp meetings and having preachers come in and invite people in to preach. Okay, Those are the two ways. So they had this big tent meeting in Southern California, and Stephen Haskell was scheduled to preach. He gets up to preach, and uncharacteristically there, there's this huge thunderstorm. And it is loud, and the rain and the thunder and everything, you couldn't hardly hear him. And so there was consideration to calling off the meeting, but Elder Haskell, I believe, was impressed by the Spirit of God to do something different. He came down from the podium, came down to the middle of the tent, asked everyone to gather close around, and he began to share uh, questions and then throw out a Bible verse for someone to read. So he would say, you know, who gave the scriptures? And then he would share 2 Timothy 3.16 and somebody would quote, you know, all scripture was given by inspiration of God, right? And then he would ask another question, have somebody to read. Another question, have somebody to read. Question, Bible answer. Question, Bible answer. Question, Bible answer. The people stayed engaged. They heard what he was saying. And it actually, everybody could sense the Spirit of God in the place. And the next day, uh, Elder W.C. White, Willie White, uh, Ellen White's son, who had been at that meeting, told his mother about it. She was at the, on the campground, but wasn't at the meeting. She said, no, I want to talk to Elder Haskell and the other ministers. So the ministers gathered together with Ellen White, and she expressed how this method that was described to her, question, Bible answer, question, Bible answer, was divinely inspired that God had shown her in vision that there were going to be people in the end who are going from house to house sharing the Bible in just this way. Hundreds and thousands, she said. Now, Elder Haskell was pretty excited about this. Elder Haskell became the father of the Tract and Missionary Society, by the way, and so he was at the heart of this. 
and he started uh, getting some training going. By the way, thank you, Mark, for sharing the uh, Discipleship Handbook with me. If you have one of these, there's a chapter, chapter 25, actually, that's on giving Bible studies. I'd recommend that you uh, read it. But in it, it goes through this history, and it has uh, a little bit about this vision that she had and about what Elder Haskell did afterward. I'm going to read to you the statement that she actually writes in page 42 of Christian Service where she shares about this, these visions of, of the night that she had. She says, In visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people, a reformation. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. Hearts were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit and a spirit of genuine conversion was manifest. So she sees this picture of a reformation, and the reformation looks like, we pray for reformation all the time, right? What's that mean? That means no more uh, movies and video games and cursing and swearing and smoking and drinking. That's reformation, right? Well, of course that's reformation. But when she sees a reformation, it incorporates and is at the heart of what she sees lay people joining with ministers, going house to house, and sharing the Bible using the method that Elder Haskell demonstrated of question, Bible answer. Question, Bible answer. And so Elder Haskell, taking the cue from Ellen White, established a 10-day training program called a Bible Reading Institute. Because back then, they called Bible studies Bible readings. And uh, many of you probably have a Bible readings for the home circle on your bookshelf somewhere. Well, they started sending in these Bible readings, uh, requesting them from lay people and whoever to send in Bible readings, where they would send in question Bible answer, question Bible on any different topic. They were on angels and on heaven and on whatever, and they sent them all in, and they would publish some of them in the papers that they had and what have you. The first two that were done were on uh, the Sabbath and the second coming. The first two Bible readings that they, that they put together, they were, they were each about 150 questions long. Now that's a Bible study, but I wouldn't recommend it. But anyway, this was a big thing. They were having people write in. They would have uh, times where they would come together for a public meeting, and they would read these different ones and evaluate them. I mean, it was a, it was a big thing they were developing. And they had this training program uh, that, that Elder Haskell put together, and he put a, an ad in the Signs of the Times, the leading paper at that time, to invite people, encourage people to come to this Bible Reading Institute training, day training program. And this is the ad. I want you to read this. Or I want you to hear it. Not only young men and women are wanted, but men of mature years. Even if their heads are sprinkled with gray hairs, they are none too old to visit families and tell what God has done for them and read the Scriptures. Catch that. Young men, young women, old, young, doesn't matter, right? What was all the excitement about when it came to Bible reading? God had revealed a method to the Seventh-day Adventist church of spreading this end-time message to the world that was not dependent upon the ministry. You see, before they had to go somewhere, raise up a tent, preach, you know, or pass literature. But now here was a way to actually personally communicate 
the truth that was not dependent upon the ministers. And Ellen White would later write, the plan of holding Bible readings was a heaven-born idea. Who gave the idea to us as a church? Heaven. Heaven. God gave us this method. There are many, both men and women, who can engage in this branch of missionary labor, she says. Brothers and sisters, God has given us this method for not primarily the ministers, but primarily the church members. That's why it's given. God had that in mind the entire time. Okay, I've got 10 minutes and I'm going to do some quick work. I want to share with you a couple of different things. Okay. This is a funnel. And it's a soul winning funnel. And people come in from all different places in this funnel. Uh, people are first introduced to the church sometimes through health ministries, cooking schools, that sort of thing. Sometimes it could be a social event. They could be invited to a concert or something like that. They could come to a VBS or their children come to a VBS, various different things. But down here uh, is a little bit different. See, up here, somebody could come into the church and, you know, down here, this is when someone finally becomes a baptized member, there's water down here. So someone could come through health ministry and eventually become a baptized member without ever stepping foot into a vacation Bible school. Someone could come to a concert, meet some people, become connected to the church, and ultimately become a member without ever coming to a church social or a health ministry event. But everybody has to go through this neck of the funnel. You know what that is? You ought to know what that is. That's Bible study. You know, you can love someone into confidence in you, but you can't really love someone into the truth. The truth is what grips someone. The Lord Jesus has to grip someone. He has to reveal himself through his word to someone in order for them to really have staying power in the church. So Bible studies are absolutely critical for anyone. No matter what they might you know, have become prepared through, ultimately they go through Bible studies. Now, an evangelistic meeting is a condensed Bible study. okay, And even that, we usually follow up with more personal Bible studies in order to have them prepared. But ultimately, that's what we're looking at here. Here's the problem in, in our church right now. You know, I used to work uh, in a, another life uh, in accounting and managerial accounting, and I worked for a, a manufacturing company. And that manufacturing company had all different parts of its process. Uh, you know, we, we made cylinders, that helium cylinders and other things, and you would have to take it through this blanking press and blank out this uh, steel out of the steel coil, these little blank circles. And then you would take that metal and it would be sh shaped through forming presses. And then you would put those together and it would go through the weld line. And then it would go through this test chamber to check for leaks. And then it would have to go through spot welding. And then it would have to go to the paint line and it would be painted. And then it had to go to the packaging line and get packaged. And it went through this process, right? Well, the paint line 
you know, I did financial analysis on all sorts of things, whether it was, was worth automating and, it, you know, spending the money on this automation machine to take out this labor and all that sort of thing in order to get, make profit on it. Well, uh, the paint line was our slowest part. It was, it was the part that we would consider the bottleneck. So I could, you know, we, we could spend a whole bunch of money uh, further on our forming presses, and it wouldn't make a bit of difference because we'd just be stacking up shells because, because you still got to get to the paint line. You understand what I'm saying? Because the paint line is a bottleneck, and unless you increase the output through the efficiencies of the paint line, you're not going to increase your total output. Brothers and sisters, we have a bottleneck in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Everybody wants to work up here. And it's very important. These are important things. I'm not negating them. But if everybody wants to work up here, and yet the one thing that everybody has to go through is right here, and only a few people are willing to do this in any church, there's a reason why we have five, six baptisms in a church and we're satisfied with that a year. Right? But what if we had... 30, 40 lay people giving Bible studies in every church. I mean, could you imagine if we opened up this bottleneck, what would happen in our church? The potential for growth in the Seventh-day Adventist church is not some new innovative method. It is simply taking the divine plan and putting it into place and lay people using what God has given us in order to lead people into the truth. And I believe that God is doing that. Um, we're going to see it happen. Let me tell you something. You will never see a reformation happen in a direction that you're not already going in. The Holy Spirit does not hit anything but a moving target. If we believe that everyone needs to be moving this direction, then we need to be doing whatever it takes to move in that direction, and then God will begin to bless it. And I believe that we're moving that way here in the Michigan Conference. Now, I want to... Do you mind if I talk about Pastor Tony for a minute? Okay, good. I want to tell you about my good friend, Pastor Tony Sirigliano. He's passed away now, but Mark and I met him at the uh, Pennsylvania camp meeting many years ago, and before we were both pastors. And uh, Pastor Tony had a seminar sort of like this at camp meeting. It was on soul winning. Mark and I were in it. And on the first day, he told us that before we're done today, I'm going to tell you about, and he was a big guy. He had a... You know, New York, was it, was it, was it New York or Boston? <laughs> New York accent. Anyway, but Pastor Tony said, before we're done, I'm, I'm going to give you a method that is nine times out of ten effective at getting a Bible study. Nine times out of ten, you will get a Bible study if you use this method. And he called it Pastor Tony's Surefire Method. And so I'm, you know, I'm not the most uh, sanguine guy, so the first time around I kind of chickened out. He said, okay, he, he told us at the end about what the method was. He basically said this. All you need to do is tell someone, hey, I'm taking a class on Bible studies and how to share my faith. And they're wanting us to find someone to, to share these Bible studies with, and I was wondering if you would be willing to be the one to do these Bible studies with me. 
And we were all like, oh, whatever. But some people said, okay, I'll do it. We had about, I don't remember how many it was, five to seven people raise their hands and say they were willing to try it. I didn't raise my hand. So he said, I want you to try tonight. And I want you to come back tomorrow and tell me about your Bible study. Let me tell the story. I got one minute. Anyway, so the next day, you can do all you want to correct it later. The next day, we come back. It's Tuesday of the, of the class. And the first thing he does is ask, okay, who, had, who, who signed up for Pastor Tony's Surefire Method? I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. And so they raise their hand. And the first one says, yeah, uh, I, you know, so-and-so, and I, and I asked, and it worked, and I got it. And they said yes. And, oh, we're thinking, wow, you know. The next one, every one of them got a Bible study. No, you think I'm kidding. Every one of them got the Bible study. So, you know, as I like to say, I'm, I'm not the most sanguine guy in the world, but I'm not a coward either. So I'd been planning for this day. So then he says, all right, who's going to go tonight? Who's going to ask tonight? And I raised my hand, because I had in mind, I was thinking about my little brother. I was a worldly, worldly guy before my conversion, and my little brother grew up watching me, and so he was a worldly guy, and I felt, always felt a little sense of remorse after my conversion for the fact that he was just modeling after me, and so I thought I could study with him and his, at then, that time, girlfriend. So that night, I went to the payphone, that can tell you about when it was, <clears throat> and I dialed up my little brother, said, hey, Ron, yeah, um, listen, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania, actually, at this uh, spiritual retreat, like it's a week-long spiritual retreat, they call it camp meeting, anyway, I'm taking this seminar on how to share the Bible, how to share your faith, and, uh, and they're, they're wanting us to try to ask somebody, find people that we can share the Bible with, share studies with, and I thought about you and Danielle, and thought maybe you might be open to that. So what, what do you think? To which he says, is this a trick? And I said, no, it's not a trick. Look, if you don't want to do it, it's okay. I'll, I'll ask somebody else. I just thought I would start with you guys. No, it's all right. I guess, I guess we'll do it. I could not. Did he just say that? I went back the next day to Pastor Tony. Woo, I had my hand up. I got my Bible study. I was so incredibly pumped, I didn't have a clue how to do it. I went home, I took the step, book Steps to Christ, highlighted text in it, kind of walked through chapter by chapter, and uh, when it was all said and done, his, you know, I, I, he was really convicted by it, I could tell. His girlfriend, no interest whatsoever, and I, I had a conversation with him about about halfway through. He was like, look, you know, I see it and everything, but, but she's not interested, and I'm, you know, I love her, I'm not going to lever or whatever I mean I, I, so I saw that this was not going anywhere and I ended up telling him to read the rest of the book and let me know if they had questions and that's kind of where it got left a few years later after he'd been with her for seven years he you know had been living with her everything else I mean they, they might as well have been married and they finally decided to get married and uh, about a month before they were going to get married she dumped him and he spiraled, got into a really bad situation, and, uh, but he ended up meeting a girl. She got pregnant, 
he came and talked to me about how they didn't want this baby to be raised like their lifestyle and what have you, and they were thinking about taking the baby to church after it's born. And so he wanted me to tell his now fiancé why they should go to church on Saturday. I said, well, look, and she had a brother who was training to be a, a youth pastor in a non-denominational church. So I said, look, you know, before you decide where you're going to go to church, you really ought to decide what you believe. So maybe we could just meet like once a week and we could go through some of the main topics of the Bible and we could just study them out together. By now I knew a little bit more what I was doing. And we did. And we started to study. And they had a lot to come out of. And it was very, you know, they still had to get married. I married them. We went through the whole process. After a year and a half, the day before I packed up the truck to move to Alpena, Michigan to start my ministry here in Michigan, I baptized both of them. They're actually here on the campground this week. Now they have three little boys. <laughs> and it was all because it all started with Pastor Tony's surefire method. But you know what I learned? I learned that Pastor Tony was tricking us. Because after that, I started teaching a Sabbath school in my local church, and I, I had somebody come to my Sabbath school who was interested in the Sabbath school, seemed to be somewhat interested, but she had not been coming to the church. She was just a brand new person. And so after the Sabbath school, I walked up to her, uh, take note, Sabbath school teachers, this is what you're supposed to do. I walked up to her and I said, hey, listen, if you, uh, you know, I, I know you've missed a lot, you know, and this is your first time here or whatever, but we have some great, awesome Bible study series that, that I like to take people through and go through with them, study with them, and if you'd be interested, I'd be happy to do something like that. And she's like, oh, I've been looking for something like that. Now, it wasn't Pastor Tony's method, but then it kind of dawned on me. It's not about how you act. It's that you ask. And it, Pastor Tony just gave us a tricky way to think that we were, you know, somehow that this tricky way was different from just asking somebody. Let me tell you something, and I'll say it again in the main auditorium uh, later this week, but there are really only three ways to get a Bible study. You can ask in the morning, you can ask in the afternoon, or you can ask in the evening. But just ask. That's the moral of the story. Now this week, this week, who are you going to ask? I want you to think about it. You, you don't even need a, cell, or a pay phone. you got a cell phone. Who are you going to ask with Pastor Jim's surefire method? <laughs> what am I? I coin that? I don't know. I want you to think about it. <laughs> We're going to make it easy. Now you missed a part of it. Pastor Tony's surefire method is to call somebody up, say, I'm taking this class, and in order for me to successfully complete it, I need to study the Bible with somebody. I'm a little nervous, and I was hoping maybe you, you could help me out. I'm going to tell you, people don't say no to that. Well, I can't tell you that because when I called somebody, they did say no. Because I was at the same camp meeting. But I think I didn't remember we have at about 25. You must have been the only one because everybody else. Now you're the Emmanuel director. 
That's right. But at about, I know. There were probably about 25 people in that camp meeting class, and I want to say 20, at least 21 of them had studies by just doing that very thing. And you can do it right here at this camp meeting in your prayer time, right. day or tomorrow. Put it before the Lord and say, Lord, who should I ask? There are people in your, there are people you wanted to study with forever. You're like, not that person, because they'll say no. No. Who should I ask? And then just do what we said. I'm taking this class. In order for me to complete it successfully, I need to study the Bible with somebody. I'm a little bit nervous. You're doing, that's the woman at the well thing. You're putting yourself on, you're putting them up higher and yourself down lower. You're not like, hey, I'm going to teach you something. I'm a little nervous, something I want to do. Could you help me out? And you'd be surprised what that does. Now, that may not finish the study like with Ron, but it'll get you started. And all the Lord needs is a start. <clears throat> all right, so what we want to do is is tomorrow uh, we want to we're going to give you today, but tomorrow we want to see who has used Pastor Tony's surefire method. I, I know there's some sanguines in here, there's some brave people in here who are already thinking about it. Be the one, be the one. Is there somebody right here right now who already is thinking about somebody they might ask you to Bible study? Oh, amen, amen. All right, so so I want to hear reports back tomorrow, okay? All right, that's fantastic. Look, um, this is the direction. If I had time, this is what I was going to do, but I'm not going to tell you now. I'm just going to write something up. The conference is going to be working on a Bible study reformation. We've been doing Unlock Revelation, event-focused stuff, but we want personal work. And so we are going to advertise across the state, BibleStudyOffer.com. And you are going to see us getting Bible studies all over the state, Bible study interests, and we need people who are ready and prepared to give them. We need laborers. That's really what we need. It's not. It won't be until probably uh, September. So it's all under development now, but we're going to give you the plan here at Camp Meeting. If you come to the main auditorium, I've got something that I'll be sharing with everyone next Sabbath. Um, I'll be sharing things each evening a little bit about it. So... Um, just stay tuned. You're here for a reason because God is going to use you as first fruits of the laborers that we really, really desperately need. All right. Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer as we close the morning session. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we've had. Uh, we just pray that there would be this mighty reformation in which hundreds and thousands are seen, visiting families and opening before them the word of God. I pray for every person who is in this room. There are a lot of nerves that are stirring in people's hearts and their stomachs. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the peace of heaven. Help us to remember that it's not about how we cast the seed. It's about the ground in which it falls. And so, if someone doesn't receive everything, that's okay. Help us to learn how to find those who are interested in the things of heaven. Lead them to us, Lord. Help us to be brought into their pathway. And then give us the courage to share our faith and to be witnesses for you in the truest sense of the term. So bless each one of these people and bring us together, Lord, as we uh, join again in the afternoon for further training in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.